Morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you. Um, are you ready to dive back into Second Corinthians? Come on. Who's brought their Bibles? Yeah, five, six, seven. All right, let's just start. <laughs> um, I don't want to be too long on the introduction this morning um, because we have something of uh, a meaty text before us. You know, some bits of the Bible are, are like a, a light snack. You know, they're easy to digest and they, they satisfy us instantly. But then other bits require a bit of chewing, don't they? They require us to get our teeth into it a bit this morning. And today's passage, uh, I feel, is a bit like a, a 48-ounce steak. <coughs> so, forks at the ready. Last week, Steve laid the foundations for us. He gave us some of the historical, the cultural context um, the background to this city that Paul is writing to, the ancient city of Corinth. Um, and as he's already mentioned, if you missed it, then please catch up online under resources and sermon series. Um, but there are just two things this morning that I want us to, to bear in mind as we read this next section of the letter together. Two things that I, help, I think will help us um, just get the, the context of this right. Firstly, I want us to, to remember that actually what we're dealing with here are real letters. This isn't made up, this isn't fiction. These are real letters written by the Apostle Paul to real Christians in the ancient city of Corinth. And last week Steve mentioned to us that you can read about the planting of that church in Acts chapter 18. And if you're <clears throat> not very familiar with your Bibles um, or you're new to it this morning, Acts is a, is a, the, it's a history, essentially, um, of the early church, written by a doctor and a historian called Luke, who spent time traveling um, with Paul on his journeys, and he recorded much of what happened. Um, so the, the, the whole story of the planting is in church, of the church is there in Acts 18, um, but there's a, a little verse I just want to show you this morning, and essentially what happens here is it tells us that Paul received a vision from God while he was in Corinth, and he was instructed by Jesus to keep on teaching and preaching and uh, there because God told him that he had many people in the city. And we find out that Paul ends up staying in Corinth for a year and a half. So in that year and a half, he got to know those people. He learned all about them and their lives and he loved them and he taught them and he encouraged them and he built them up. And so this church is, is a church that Paul cares deeply about. It's a church that he is deeply invested in. And he was compelled by God to care for their spiritual needs. And it's important for us to bear that in mind. The second thing I want us to bear in mind that is that these aren't the only letters that Paul sent to the church in Corinth. Paul was um, primarily a missionary. He spent much of his life traveling around the known world, spreading the gospel message. Uh, had he been born today, he'd have had enough frequent flyer miles, I'd imagine, to travel mostly for free. And while he was traveling, he kept in touch with these churches um, by writing to them, by correspondence. And we know from 1 Corinthians 5 that he'd written to them before 1 Corinthians. And we know from 2 Corinthians, and indeed the passage we're going to look at today, that he'd written to them before this letter as well. And we also know that just prior to that, he has, he'd visited them in person. And so just to give you a sense of the, the, the time scale here, the time frame... 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, as we have them in our Bible, they're written less than a year apart. And in the middle of that, we have at least one other letter 
and a visit by Paul. So as I say, this is a church that he was deeply, deeply invested in. We find out from Acts 20 that he actually visits the church again after 2 Corinthians. So he was regularly there at the church. He'd planted the church, he watered it, he'd pruned it, and he wanted to encourage it and see the church grow and flourish. And that was Paul's heart. That's why he has these letters that we have and the other letters that he wrote to the church. So as we heard last week, Paul begins his letter with a greeting. Hello, it's me again. Um, And then he speaks briefly about the difficulties that he's been facing in Asia. And he tells them that he doesn't want them to be uninformed and that he faces the difficulties because it helps him to become reliant on God and that the comfort he receives through the trials he can pass on to others and especially to the church in Corinth. But there is another reason that Paul tells them about these difficulties. And we're going to discover that in today's reading. So if you haven't done so already, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we finished at verse 11 last week. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And you might have a little subheading um, in your Bibles. It might say something like, Paul's change of plans, or words to that effect. Please remember that those weren't there in the original text. They were added Later on, Paul would have been a strange man indeed had he referred to himself in the third person constantly. Um, So the letter just reads straight through. Verse 12 then. This is what he says. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything that you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you've understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident in this. I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both, yes, yes, and then no, no. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. I want us to make sure that we fully understand what is happening here. Remember last week Steve said that reading these letters is a bit like hearing only half of a telephone conversation, right? I want us to, um, what we're hearing here is Paul's response to something that the Corinthians have said, um, and I want to try and fill in some of the other side of the conversation for you. So some of you might remember um, from last summer, or perhaps from your own reading, that one of the issues that Paul faces in the first letter that he writes to the Corinthians, one Corinthians in our Bible, is division in the church. There was certain favoritism that was being shown to certain leaders. Um, And in 1 Corinthians, Apollos and Cephas or Peter are mentioned by name. And what we find is that less than a year later, unsurprisingly, some of these divisions still exist. And it seems like certain people in the churches around Corinth had taken umbrage with Paul. They were out to get him. They had leveled several criticisms against him. Firstly, they felt that he had conducted himself poorly in the world. They felt that he hadn't really behaved in the way that he should be behaving. Secondly, they felt that he had conducted himself poorly 
in his relations with them. Thirdly, they feel that he's acted according to worldly wisdom and not godly wisdom or, or godly intent. Fourthly, they complained that the letter he'd written to them had been poorly written and was difficult to understand. Or maybe they hadn't really wanted to understand. And finally, fifthly, they complain that he is fickle. That he's someone who's unable to make up his mind. And therefore, tr- untrustworthy as a leader and as an individual. And essentially what they're doing here is they're calling into question Paul's integrity. Both as a leader in the church and his integrity as a follower of Jesus. And I think... Perhaps it's in this that we can draw another parallel between ancient Corinth and modern Britain. Because we're living in a time also where the integrity of our leaders is often in question. In fact, I would suggest more often than not. I came across a poll that was taken um, a couple of years ago, 2015, that showed that politicians and government ministers were the least trusted of all professions. Only 21% of people said they would trust them, lower even than journalists and estate agents. One reporter remarked of the US election last year that the truth has become so devalued that what was once the gold standard of political debate is now a worthless currency. And the same poll that I came across also showed that people no longer trust church leaders, whereas once... Back in, uh, I think it was the early 80s, they were top of the list. They are now ranked eighth, lower even than the average person on the street. And our society, I think, has a serious issue with integrity. And as Christians, as people that represent Jesus in the world, we have a responsibility, I believe, to do something about this. And indeed, this was the criticism that Paul was facing all those years ago from the Corinthians. So what had Paul done to deserve this scathing review? What was the scandal? What had set them against him? What was BuzzFeed saying about him? There's no young people in today. (coughs) Essentially, the problem was this. He changed his travel plans. (gasps) Shock. Horror. How can we ever trust him again? You see, as I mentioned, after writing 1 Corinthians, Paul felt it necessary to visit them in person... Um, He refers to this visit in his letter as the painful visit. And we're going to get onto that in a short while. But as he was leaving, he said to them, Look, guys, I'm going to come back to you before I go on to Macedonia. However, instead of going back, he'd uh, immediately, remember in Acts 20, he does go back eventually. Instead of going back immediately, he writes them a letter. And the Corinthians weren't happy about this. How dare he? How dare he change his mind? How dare he go back on something that he said. I'll say it again. How dare he go back? <laughs> Being heckled by Siri, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a low moment. <laughs> Now this isn't, um, I I feel at this point I should defend Paul really, because this isn't a flippant decision that he's made. There are a number of reasons why Paul makes this decision. Firstly, his visit had been hard, it had been confrontational, it had been a painful visit, as he said. And once more, the problems that he'd come to try and deal with in the church hadn't gone away. 
And so rather than returning really soon after his first visit and causing more upset and more hurt in the church, he reasoned that perhaps a better approach would be to send a letter, to give them time to consider his point of view, to give them time to to work it out and to work it through and to heal. And it it turns out that was the right decision. Later on in this letter, um, Paul says this, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. So we see that the letter worked better. It was more effective where he perhaps would have been more antagonistic had he gone in person. He didn't forget about them. He just tried a different approach. And the other thing that that we find out from Acts 19 is that there was a riot in Ephesus where he was preaching and teaching at the time. Paul um, had put his life at risk for the sake of the gospel. Remember we read last week in, in, in 1 verse 9, Indeed, we felt as though we'd received the sentence of death. And so Paul tells them this at the start of the letter, so they know what he's facing, and they know that he's not making these decisions lightly or flippantly. He's facing the possibility of death for the gospel, while the Corinthians complain about themselves. But despite having those good reasons for defending himself, for changing his plans, um, Paul knows how serious integrity is as a follower of Jesus. He understands the importance of our integrity, and so he sends them a response anyway. And that's what we have this morning. And it's from this response that I think we can learn at least four really important lessons about our integrity as believers of Jesus. So that's what we're just going to explore for a few moments together this morning. So let me just take you back to verse 12. He says, Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. In other words, he's checked his motivation, he's checked his heart before God, and he's concluded that he has acted in the right way. I think the first lesson that we learn about integrity from Paul is the importance of checking the motivation of our hearts. King David said in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. You see, because integrity isn't just to do with our words and our actions. It's not just to do with the things that we do, but it's to do with our heart. It's to do with our motivation. Jesus said, didn't he, that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Whatever our heart is towards determines how we act and behave. And Paul was confident. He was confident that the actions he were making were with godly sincerity, with a genuine, heartfelt desire to go after the things of God, to seek his kingdom first. He was so confident of this that he tells him in verse 14 that he hopes they'll understand his intentions so that they can boast with him on the day of the Lord. And the, and the, the boasting here, it's not in the sense of showing off perhaps as we might interpret it, but it's in the sense of celebrating together, being joyous together on that day. Celebrating when they come face to face with Jesus. And he'd written about it previously uh, to, to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes and he will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each person will receive their praise from God. This is a challenging verse, I think, for us this morning. 
to think about the motivation of our hearts. Now, Paul wasn't someone that always got it right. Far from it. But he was confident that he would receive praise from God. And he was confident because he'd understood the message of Jesus. He tells us in verse 12 that he doesn't rely on worldly wisdom, but on the grace of God. And you see, because his heart was for God, he knew that those times when he got it wrong, he would be covered by God's grace. And if we live to gratify our own desires, our own wants, if the motivation of our hearts is something other than the kingdom of God, then we've misunderstood the message of Jesus. Because first and foremost, we're called to repentance. We're called to turn away from the world and turn to the things of God. And it's in doing that that we receive his grace and forgiveness. And Paul says he relies on it. He relies on this grace. He, rely, he leans into the cross of Christ. And if we earnestly seek after God, if our hearts are for him, we can be confident too that when we come face to face, we'll have every reason to celebrate and rejoice. And you see, Paul isn't boasting here in his own ability or his own accomplishments. What he's boasting in is his relationship with God through Jesus. The second lesson I think we learn from Paul about integrity is that we need to make sure that we are living one life. He wants them to know that his motivation is the same with them as it is when he's apart from them. He isn't double-minded. He writes in verse 17, Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes and no, no? It makes me recall the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I think one of the big issues that we have with integrity today is that we often lead more than one life. Some of us have uh, Facebook lives, for example. I'm definitely someone that has a Facebook life. In, in my Facebook world, my face can only be viewed from the perfect angle My children are perfect. My life is incredibly interesting and dynamic and filled with wonderful activities and endless smiles. But it's a mask. It's the bits of my life that I want the world to see. And there's a danger, I think, in that for us. Are we the same people that we are on a Sunday morning as we are through the rest of the week? Do we have a church life where God is king and Jesus is Lord and then a work life where, eh, not so much. Or a family life, or a social life, or perhaps a relationship we would rather that God just not be involved in. The Corinthians are accusing Paul of being a different person when he wasn't with them. The main reason the Titanic was considered unsinkable was it was a new design of ship. Uh, The hull was divided into 16 watertight compartments. And the theory was that even if four, the unthinkable, four of those compartments were to flood, then the ship could still remain afloat. And so when the Titanic did sink, they assumed that what had happened was an iceberg had caused a gash so long that at least five of the compartments had ruptured. But 73 years later, explorers found the wreck of the Titanic on the bottom of the ocean, and they found no gash in the side. 
And what they discovered after some work is that what had happened is the collision with the iceberg had caused the rivets in the sections to come loose, causing water to flood in and the ship to sink. In other words, the impact to one compartment had affected the integrity of the whole ship. If we're hiding sin in our life, it won't be long before it affects every area. Yeah? We need to ensure that we're living one life with Jesus at the centre, just as Paul did. Not a life divided up into compartments where some doors are open to Jesus and some doors are closed, but a life where he is king in every single area, or else we run the risk of the whole thing coming apart. The third lesson I think we learn from Paul about integrity is that we need to make sure that we are living our message. So the people of Corinth, they believed um, that because Paul had told them that he was going to visit and then failed to do so, his message about God may also be untrue. And this is, I think this is maybe the reason why our integrity is so important. If we tell people that we follow Jesus and that Jesus has changed our lives and then we live however we please, it completely invalidates our message. It makes our message worthless. You know, the trustworthiness of the messenger affects the trustworthiness of the message, right? I think this is why we have such a big problem with politicians in our society, because they prove themselves to be untrustworthy. Do we behave the same? And Paul is only too aware of this. In the next section, he brings the Corinthians back to the message. Um, we're going to look, read on from verse 18. He says, But surely, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it's God that makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us, he has set his seal of ownership on us, and he has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So I think at this point in, in his, his response to them, Paul seems to become less concerned about his integrity and more concerned about the integrity of the message that he had delivered to the Corinthians that he had put in their heart. He's already defended his own motivation, his own heart before God, and so he reminds them that the message, that what he has preached with them is true, that it's trustworthy, that Jesus is still the answer, or as he writes, that Jesus is still the yes to every promise that God has made. He says, through him the amen is spoken, and, and very often, most of us, I'd imagine, when we finish our prayers, we say, in Jesus' name, amen, right? And the word Amen. It came to English from the Latin, um, which got it from the Greek, which got it from the Aramaic, which got it from the Hebrew. Um, and the Hebrew is difficult to translate, which is why it just gets passed along. But essentially, the root of the word means it is true. It is trustworthy. It is dependable. We say in Jesus' name, it is true. You can trust in Jesus. You can depend on Jesus. You can depend on Jesus' integrity. And this is the kind of life that Paul wanted them 
to lead. It's the kind of life he wanted them to get on board with, a life of total dependence on God, a life where um, they were totally submitted to his will. Theologian John Stott writes this, When Jesus is Lord of our beliefs, opinions, ambitions, standards, values, and lifestyle, then we are integrated Christians. Then integrity marks our life. Only when he is Lord do we become whole. That's some challenging stuff, isn't it? Beliefs, opinions, ambitions, standards, values, and lifestyle. If we want people to believe our message, then we have to live in the truth of Jesus. In every area of our lives. Even those areas that perhaps are um, a bit uncomfortable from time to time. And, you know, Paul doesn't say it's easy. He never claims that. In fact, he encourages them to stand firm. That seems to indicate that it's going to be difficult. But he says, you're not on your own. He reminds them that they've been given the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, as a deposit. And a deposit is a guarantee that there is something more to come. In modern Greek, the same word that Paul uses here um, is the word that they use for an engagement ring. It's a way of saying that the Holy Spirit is the first installment of a life that is to come. The Holy Spirit keeps us on the straight and narrow. It reminds us that we belong to someone else. And it helps us to live a life that is pleasing to God. You know, I love that song that we, that we did, No Longer Slays, because it reminds us again that we are God's children. That we are called now to a different life. That we are adopted into a different life. Um, back in the 90s, where I'm from, uh, we, had, uh, we had these bracelets... Oh, I've got a picture, look, called WWJD Bands. Put your hand up if you have one of those. Come on, be honest. Yeah, excellent. That's my crew. Um, it stood for What Would Jesus Do? That was, that was the band. And the idea was that in every situation you would have a reminder that you were to be living as a follower of Jesus. You know, before you did something naughty. You know, cheeky look at your wrist and remember. But that's the job of the Holy Spirit to live in us, to remind us who we belong to. You know, we wear an engagement ring, don't we, as a constant reminder that we're promised to another. Not that we should need reminding. The fourth lesson, the final lesson this morning that I think we can learn from Paul about integrity is that we shouldn't compromise, especially not when it comes to our relationships with other people. Let me just read on the next section for you. I promised Steve I'd make it into chapter 2, so... I call on God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Because it's by faith that you stand firm. Uh, 2 verse 1. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when, it came, when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. And I had confidence in all of you that you would all share in my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And you see, Paul's integrity was such that it compelled him to deal with the issues he saw in other people's lives, specifically the believers in Corinth, who he loved and cared for so deeply. 
And after writing 1 Corinthians, he, he visits them and he goes to deal with some of those issues that he saw. He goes to try and help them out. And he runs into all sorts of resistance. It had been hard work. He needed to call people to account, people that he loved. And he needed to say things that he knew was going to be difficult for people to hear. And sometimes, sometimes I think we fear the consequences of calling sin out of each other's lives. Right? Sometimes I think we're worried about the consequences. Sometimes I think that we think we might lose a relationship over it. And so we adopt this policy of uh, live and let live. As long as they're not hurting anyone, right? And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about non-believers now, our, our, our unbelieving friends. I'm talking about our Christian brothers and sisters. Perhaps those in our lives that we know have walked away from God. Or those that we know are living with sin in their lives that actually could cause everything to come undone for them. Just like the Titanic. But Paul cared way too much to compromise. He wasn't prepared to leave the church in its sin. He knew that full well, unless it was dealt with, unless it was resolved, unless they could heal and be fixed, then the whole thing could sink. And he knew what he needed to say would be painful for them to hear, but his motivation was never to hurt, never to harm. His motivation was to heal, to see them restored to the joy of their salvation. And you can sense the conviction in what he says, you know, because he says to you, I wrote out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many, many tears. And my final challenge to us this morning is that do we love each other enough to call the sin out of each other's lives? Or do we compromise? Do we go for perhaps an easy life from time to time? I told you it was a meaty passage this morning, didn't I? When the Corinthians challenged Paul about his integrity, he could say with confidence, he could say with a clear conscience that he had acted with integrity and with godly sincerity. Are we the kind of people that can say the same? That's our challenge today. What is the motivation of our heart this morning? Are we motivated for the things of God, the kingdom of God? Or are we motivated by something else? Perhaps our own desires or our own wants. Are we living one whole complete life with Jesus at the centre? Or are we living a life that's divided up into compartments? Are we living our message? As people see us through the week and hear our words and our actions, do they know that Jesus is true? Do they know that Jesus is the answer? And are we uncompromising? Are we the kind of people who love each other enough to fight for them, even if it causes us pain and anguish? Challenging stuff. Let's pray together while the band come up to lead us again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's letter to the Corinthians, for the challenge that he lays before us this morning. God, I pray that you would help us today to examine our hearts. And Father, that we might have confidence that our hearts are towards you. That we are covered by your grace because we ultimately desire the things of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to live one life. Even when it's challenging, even perhaps when it's difficult 
to think about you, to pray to you, to seek after you in work or at home or in family with relationships. I pray that we would be whole, integral people. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in your truth, that you would help us to live our message, that people would discover the person of Jesus and the impact that he can make through our lives. And Father, I pray that you would help us to speak to those people, to challenge those people in our lives that we know need to be challenged. Not to cause hurt or upset or unrest, but to cause them to heal, to cause them to come back to the joy of their salvation, to be restored, because that's our heart's desire. In Jesus' name.